We will open back to Matthew chapter 18 as we continue our study through the book of Matthew. <clears throat> you know, who knew it would take this long to get through one chapter? But, yeah, there you go. It is a deep chapter, however, um, and I think it deserves a lot of time devoted to it. Uh, you know, most of the time when we think about the 18th chapter of the book of Matthew, we primarily think about how you deal with a brother that's wronged you in the church. I mean, that's what a lot of people go to Matthew 18 for. Okay, well, what's the steps? How do we do it? You know, it's got to go to private and counseled and then church, and then this is how, you know, that's, the, that's where we get our, you know, kind of our disciplinary model. But, you know, what I hope we see from these sections of Scripture that are coming up, you know, about... Uh, forgiveness and how to deal with um, a brother or sister in Christ is that it's part of a bigger kind of five-part series in this chapter of the unforgettable love and devotion and protection that Christ awarded to his disciples. Um, as we've been going through this, that's what we have been seeing. You know, you can't jump to just the 21st verse and pick up from there, or 15th verse and pick up from there and take it out of the context of the whole chapter. This is one continuous thought by Christ, building one after the other after the other. And it's, a def, it's addressing different layers of one of the similar problems, of the same problem. The problem from the very beginning in the closing of chapter 17 going into 18 was the offending, the causing to stumble, the uh, corrupting, the... Uh, you know, the misdirecting of the disciple of Christ. That's where this all has fallen off of. Um, and so he started that at the end of chapter 17 with the tax collectors, and he's moved now into this bigger, greater theme. And we talked about last time how he addressed the world and the woe to those who would offend in the world that would cause, you know, a brother or sister to fall, that there is a woe pronounced on them and an impending doom waiting for them. And then he also goes forward to say, but, you know, this also, this still reflects on you. Uh, you know, it was a warning against the world, but it was also, it was a repeat warning to his disciples of internal stumblings. Make sure you're not the reason that you're causing yourself to stumble, that you're to be diligent in your holiness. And here Christ continues on this idea about offending one of his little ones, which is the stumbling, misdirecting, tempting, trying, offending of one of his disciples. And if you remember last time when we were talking about it, he put some pretty serious heavy weights on those offenses. He spoke about the woes. He spoke about the eternal hell and destruction. He spoke about, you know, a lighter sentence, you know, like throwing yourself in the ocean with a stone around your neck. I mean... Those were all very heavy things that he was describing. He's going to kind of keep that up to some degree, but one aspect of it that's going to come forward in these next section of Scripture, which is really what I hope we grab today, is his ferocity in his love, devotion, and protection of his disciples, of his followers, of his children. So as he goes forward, starting... In verse 10, he says, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. Again, the word despise there, kind of like the word offend. 
uh, is is speaking to a disregard of, to basically to discount, disregard, to view as being um, being less than worthy. I guess you could say scornful, looking down at. Okay. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. How think you? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine and goes into the mountains and seeks that one which has gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say to you that he rejoices more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which were not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So, here kind of Christ continues this, this devotion that he is speaking of. Why did he pronounced such woes upon the world that if they offended one of his little ones, there was going to be this righteous, divine, serious, awful retribution. Why did he encourage, re-encourage, re-admonish, scare the living daylights out of his disciples about being committed to their own holiness and devotion and their stumbling blocks? Why does he go forward and speak of... Why does he speak of all of these things? What is his main point in this entire chapter? And is that God, Christ, has his disciples, his loved ones, his little children, his little ones as he describes them, and he has a ferocious, never-ending love and compassion towards them. And that, that doesn't go anywhere. He says, these are mine. You're not messing with mine. Don't mess with mine. Don't attack mine. Don't cause one of mine to stumble. Don't this, because I'm going to tell you, if you mess with mine, okay, this goes back to the old daddy-child relationship, mama-bear relationship, don't mess with my kids, okay, that kind of thing. You can mess with me all you want to. Don't mess with one of my kids. You're liable to get messed up, okay? It's a whole new level of ferocity, okay? When you go messing with me, when you attack me, I mean, even Jesus, we talked about that this morning, even Jesus kind of throws this out there when he's speaking to those blasphemous uh, Pharisees when they're attacking him about, you know, casting out demons by the power of Satan, basically. He says, look, you can, you, all manner of offense against the Son of Man, against me, all of this can be forgiven. Don't talk about the Holy Ghost. He's my bro. Don't talk about him. Don't attribute it to him. Don't say those things about him because that ain't going to fly, all right? And almost that same kind of message and tenor he keeps giving us back in this chapter. He's like, look, if you want to know how serious I am about my little dear ones, number one, I call them my little ones, my little children. But number two, I'm going to tell you just how serious I am. Let me tell you how bad it's going to be for you. Let me tell you how seriously you are going to get messed up if you deal with one of my little ones in a deceitful, evil way. And then he goes on and says about despising them. Don't look down on them. Don't be scornful towards them. You want to know why? Because their angels are always before the face of my father. You know what that's code word for? You're going to get messed up. You ever hear Jesus when he's talking to the Pharisees or when he's rebuking Satan? You know, he'd make a point and say, look, I have legions of angels just waiting on call. I push a button and they come. 
Okay? You look back in the Old Testament and you see, and that to a Jew would have been terrifying. You see what angels did in the Old Testament? They didn't come down little flowery people throwing rose petals and love everywhere. They came down with flaming swords and burning up Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone and, you know, snatching Balaam off his donkey. I mean, they came down in some, in some fearful, terrifying ways. Every account, basically, you have of any kind of encounter with an angel, people are falling all over themselves on the floor, Okay. They're not saying, I'm going, oh, cool, a little angel, let's go, you know, skip down to church together. That's not how it is. They're terrified of their presence. So Jesus is kind of giving another warning. You want to look scornfully at these little ones? You better be careful. They have a posse in heaven. Always before the face of my father saying, God, can we just go? Let us go. Did you hear what they said? Let us go. Do you see what they did? Let us go down there. Let us just do just a little bit. We won't do a lot. We'll just... We'll just rough him up a bit, but let us go, Father. Let's go down there. Let me go take care of this person who is offending one of your little ones. Now, I know that we probably have grown up with this idea of a guardian angel, okay? People talk about it a lot. It's a very common, you know, kind of, I guess you could say myth kind of a deal. I'm not sure that this, that this verse gives a one-for-one -one ratio Okay, number one, I don't even know if you would really need a one-for-one -one ratio. I mean, like one angel could take on a whole army of Syria, I think is what it was. So, I mean, I don't think you really have to go through a lot of one-to-one. -one. You had to have enough to cover every person because if not, they couldn't get the job done. But it is kind of interesting what Jesus says here. Almost in a flippant, passing glance kind of remark. He doesn't go into it. He doesn't elaborate Nowhere else in Scripture actually elaborates on this. I mean, you can go back to places like Daniel chapter 10, where we were kind of jumping around through Daniel this morning. You can go back to Daniel chapter 10, and Daniel and J Daniel chapter 10, you have the introduction of the, of the uh, messenger angel Gabriel, who kind of seems to be Israel's messenger angel that comes down and gives all these messages. Gabriel came to, the, you know, to... Uh, to marry at, at the birth and was or before the birth and announced. I mean, that's what a, Gabriel is regarded in that way. He's the messenger angel. You also have in Daniel chapter ten the messenger uh, recalling about Michael fighting wars with the prince of Persia, and you know, and then you have Michael later on in scriptures talking about being you know resisted by the. You know, I mean, all these weird things that are going on that we have no real solid grasp about. There was indication in Daniel chapter ten. That there's an angel over each kingdom. You get these kind of pictures of like, well, there's an angel for the kingdom of Israel and there's an angel for... So there's these kind of weird, spiritual, angelic stuff going on. Maybe there is an angel for every disciple child of God in, on earth. Maybe there's not. Maybe there's one for ten. Who knows? But he gives you the picture that God has established in this creative order. Okay? These angels who, they're there to serve God in whatever capacity God has created them to serve. And here Jesus says part of their capacity is that somehow they're connected with us. Somehow they're there for our protection, to care for us, to help us. I mean, Jesus would give pictures, you know, he would talk about the angels ascending and descending from heaven on the Son of Man. And then also that they were constantly, you know, like the Jacob's Ladder scenario, they're constantly walking around the earth up and down. You know, all of these pictures that we get of angels being in, intimately involved in our lives, we never know about it most of the time. 
But here he says, I want you to understand this, though, that as you go about to potentially, or those who would potentially scorn or mistreat my little ones, I'm telling you, they have angels in front of the face of the Father waiting on go. Now, what the extent of their power or influence or intervention would be, I don't know. But doesn't it kind of feel cool that that's what's going on? You know, sometimes we look at these things as like lofty ideas or ethereal principles of like God's care and, and, and his protection of us, of how he would put into action these things. I mean, we kind of think of them in that way. But here you see him putting into action these other created beings, these angels who have been doing all these things who are kind of in this place where they're sitting there in front of the Father in a protective caregiving mode, that that's kind of part of what they do. So then you have a constant kind of, this this constant protective cadre that are sitting there waiting for whatever they may be needed for. I just think it's kind of, it's kind of a neat application to this. You know, again, we can talk about how God loves us and cares for us and has compassion for us. And sometimes we zero that all down to just what Christ did on the cross. But here Christ is saying, no, you don't understand. There's all of these things that are going on that God is constantly watching out for us. So you say, but why? Why the angels? Why did he say this? Why did he say, you know, I have these angels doing this. These angels are taking care of you. Why the care? Okay. Why the protection? Why does he do all this for us? Why has he said this is how he, he stands with his little ones? Why all this? Why, why, why? Well, Jesus answers us there in verse 11. He says, for the son of man is come to save that which was lost. He says, this is why. This is why I'm doing all this. This is why all of this is in play. This is why all of this is going on. This is why I'm this ferocious about offenders to my little ones. This is why, because I came to save those that were lost. The words from Christ's own mouth to summarize this extraordinary care of his disciples, his little ones. He came to give his life for them. He died for them. He paid a heavy price for them. And so he's going to protect his investment. <laughs> I mean, that's just part of it. You know, you wouldn't go out and, I mean, we buy a house and we get homeowner's insurance and we, you know, we want to make sure the pipes are covered up in the winter and we want to make sure the electrical work's done right so it doesn't burn down. And we want to do, I mean, we do all these things to protect our worldly goods. With our kids, we do all those things, too, to the nth degree. We come up with all these safety net plans. We make sure all the plugs are covered up so little kids don't stick their fingers in sockets. I mean, I don't understand why that is such an appealing thing to do when you have been threatened by your parents that you're going to die because of them. They're like, oh, yeah, but it just seems interesting. Why can't I get my little finger into that slot, and how can I try harder to do that? Yep. Like, you have everything in the world you could do. You have every other option. I've given you toys and manna from heaven and everything else for you to occupy your time. And the one thing you want to do is try to stitch your wet finger in a socket, and I just don't get it. But I guess it's the 
hum, human experience bent on destruction, all right? Their own destruction in and of itself. It's like we can't help just trying to kill ourselves and destroy our lives. It's just part of us or something. But Christ is going to protect his investment. Christ has invested a lot in us. He's invested his life in us. He's invested his time, his energy, his blood in us. And so he says, look, I, I care. Like it's not some kind of grandiose thing that I did for my own whatever self-satisfaction to make me feel better about myself as the creator of the cosmos. Like I just thought, hey, why not save some people? And, you know, even if they get lost, not a big deal. You know, there's more. I can create more. I'm obviously the creator of God. So this is not, I'm not too invested, but no. Christ says, I am invested in such a degree with you that I came to give my very life. And because of that, because I've bought and paid for you, I'm protecting my investment. I care about my investment. And thankfully, it's not just a business transaction kind of a mindset with him either. He's not just looking at us as a piece of property or a new house or some new cars that he bought, some old, you know, 57 Chevy in the, you know, the garage that you'll never drive, but you're going to wipe it with a baby. I mean, that's, that's not what he views us as, thankfully. But he does, view, he does view us in that lens of, I have paid for you. I have saved you that was lost. I'm not going to let that just blow away in the wind. I'm not going to let that just become some kind of sidebar in, in your existence. I care about you. And if somebody offends you, you know what? I'm going to take care of them. Someone despises you, and you know what? I got a whole team of angels up there just waiting on go. I am going to protect the ones that I have loved so much that I gave my life for. There is a ferocious, never-ending love relationship here that we get to see in this. So yeah, we look at it and we go, man, you're talking about chopping arms off and, and burning hellfire and all these things. And you're talking about millstones and you're talking about angels who are going to come and wreak havoc. I said, That's all terrifying stuff. But for us, for us, what that's telling us is that we have a father and a friend who care about us eternally. So then he goes into explain this a little bit deeper. He says, I'm going to give you an example of this. You want to see what this looks like in action. So, well, let me tell you about a lost sheep. So in the next section of this scripture, in 11 through 14, he gives us the parable of the lost sheep, or this, you know, people would call it the parable of the 90 and 9 and the 1. And he says, so how think you, you know? What do you think about this? You tell me. If a man has 100 sheep and one of them go astray, does he not leave those 99 and goes into the mountains and seeks that which one has gone astray? And if he finds it, I tell you that he rejoices more over that one sheep that he had found than of the 99 which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your father. That's one of those beautiful verses that you don't always see. There's not a lot talked about not the will. A lot of us talk about the will, the will, the will of your father is, the will of your father is. Here you kind of have the negative aspect of this. It is not the will of your father, which is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. So what Christ shows us here is a beautiful picture of the depth 
of love and compassion that he has for all of his believers. The picture, this picture of the shepherd that will go the distance, that will travel the hard road, that will seek out the lost on purpose, okay, and go to the place where they're stuck at and then rescue them and then bring them back is the most beautiful picture of a loving, compassionate relationship that can ever be created. You know, you might see pictures, and if you're looking at like wedding stuff, or if you're looking, I mean, I know that's big on everybody's mind this weekend, you know, you're looking at wedding stuff, and you'll get all these pictures pop up, and it's all these like love, you know, you're standing there, and you're like little kisses on the cheek or whatever, and you know, and you're, and you're standing by the beach, and everyone's hugging, and everyone's happy, and, and you know, it's all these beautiful pictures of what is a beautiful thing, like a marriage ceremony, or two, you know, people coming together in love, and all that, and those are beautiful pictures, Okay. What is probably a better picture of love, let's keep in the theme of a marriage relationship, would be of the two 90-year-olds who've been together 50 or 60 years, and they're still holding hands sitting beside each other. Of the, maybe the young husband and wife, one of them in a hospital bed, and the other one diligently by their side. That's a better picture of a true, loving relationship. When one has gone through all the rigors and the trials and the rough spots and the difficult patches and the hard places in in sickness and in health, but in sickness, I'm still going to be faithful. In sickness, I'm still going to be there. You don't have to worry about somebody else coming in and taking care of you. I got you because I covenanted with you and said that's what I'm going to do for our lives. That's a better picture of it. Not when things get tough, I guess I'll go the other way because I really didn't bargain for this. thought life was going to be easier. I thought marriage was going to be easier. I mean, when you start off and you're arguing about stupid things like whether you roll the tube up from the middle or the end, you have gotten off course. Okay? Number one, if you are so OCD that you can't hang with the alternative of that, that really needs to be brought up in marriage counseling. Okay? If you can't let go of that... Then you're going to have some problems, all right? If you can't let go of the toothpaste, you've got some problems going into it, okay? So that needs to be worked out, just FYI, okay? But that's the picture. That's actually the real picture. What Christ is giving us here is the real picture. Yeah, you could have these pictures of the beautiful, of the perfect. You could have used the picture like the wedding at the at Cana of Galilee and say, Oh, yeah, man, everybody's having a party. Wine's flowing. It's a good time. Jesus is like, this is your picture of love. You want to see what love and commitment looks like? When you get out of the flock and go off and get yourself into the bad situation that you're in, I, as your loving Savior and Shepherd, come and grab you and pull you out and take you back, carrying you on my shoulders. That's the picture of love. And that's what Christ did. That's Christ's example of love. He didn't just come down here spouting a bunch of good platitudes about how you should love your neighbor. He said, now I'm going to show you what that actually looks like. You want to see love in action. I'm going to come down here. I'm going to walk around with you. I'm going to pull you out of this. I'm going to die on the cross for you. I'm going to save that which was lost. Not that was right beside me. 
Not that was always with me. Not that's been eaten in the pasture, just wasn't as good as we want. Not that. No, the one that was lost. The one that's way on out there that's stuck in the nastiest, most despicable place. That's the one I'm going to go get and I'm going to take him out. That's why when Jesus went to the places that he went, he didn't go to the fancy nice places. He didn't first go into Jerusalem and hop to the temple and say, hey, everybody, look, this is where all the good people hang out. In fact, he was going off to houses, hanging out with prostitutes, saying, what, what do you expect? This is who I'm here to save. So the righteous and the healthy, they don't need the physician. I came to go to the sick, nasty ones who need me. That's the picture that he gives. That's the picture of love. You know, the old belief, or there is an old belief, not the old belief, but there is an old belief. And again, I don't know how verifiable this is, so you can go Google it, and I'm sure you'll find the right answer, all right? Just like when you Google your medical conditions to find how you should really treat them, and then go in and tell your provider how you should really treat them because you Googled it. Same thing. Go out there and Google this and find the right answer. But in my Google search... So there used to be this idea, and, and again, it could just be mythology, it could not. I just know that there have been recorded incidences of this. That in the first to fourth centuries, there were a lot of depictions in Christian historical sites like uh, tombs and things like that, where you would have frescoes or paintings or something of the wall, and the image that was expressed as the Christian emblem, okay? Not as primarily the cross, like we think of it today as being that defining thing of, what, it, what a, a Christian would be defined as. You got the cross, and you got the crescent moon, and you got the star of David. And that's like, you know, your, your, your three religions there, okay? This is what actually in the first centuries, this is what they identified with, at least, again, presumably, mythologically, whatever, is it was a picture of a shepherd carrying a sheep over his shoulders. That was the picture. And they have about, and again, the one site that I'd seen said they had some 80 or 90 frescoes that they had found in tombs from the first to the fourth centuries where that was on the wall. In the wall, the thing identifying them as a Christian tomb was this picture of a shepherd carrying a sheep on his shoulders. It's directly tied to this verse. It's directly tied to the parable of the good shepherd. The good shepherd that would not only go off and get his sheep when they went astray, the good shepherd would do what? Lay down his life. For his sheep. So not only is he going to go get the sheep when it goes astray, but when all the sheep are in the pasture and the wolves come in, the good shepherd's willing to go out there and lay down in front of the gate and go, you ain't getting in. I'm protecting what is mine. I protect it from attacks from the outside and I protect it from attacks on the inside. When the, when the wolves come in to attack, I'm going to defend that. When you go out and get yourself messed up, I'm going to get that too. I'm protecting my investment. I'm not leaving it alone. I don't say, well, you're a sheep. You have your own brain. You can make your own decisions. You have your own free will. You decide how you want to live life, and I'll just go along with it, and that'll be the end of it. No, Jesus says, no, I've paid for you, chief. I'm, you're going to be where I want you to be. I'm going to save that which is lost. So that's the picture that we get of the good Shepherd, And here, you know, you have the picture and sometimes you can get too taking things into the ultimate eternal and you can we can put these into bigger, larger theological concepts. So obviously we know that we were lost in our sins. We were lost and separated from God. 
by the transgressions of Adam. And we know those kind of things. And obviously Jesus did come and he did save us. And he did save us just in that same manner. But this is a very, very natural worldly application here. And the reason that I emphasize that is because of the fact that he regards that there were 99 still in the, sh- in the pasture. Okay? If that was all eternal, then you'd have some weird theological principle where there was like a group that didn't fall away and they didn't need saving and he had to go get the ones that did. That's, so that doesn't work. This is a natural application. I, as your Savior, have come here in this world to save you in this world. Okay? You know, I've often thought about, you know, we sometimes we try to separate too much and you're pulling the principles apart and you're relegating them to these two different categories and they're not separated. Okay? Your salvation begins here. Okay? It starts here. That's Ephesians 2 when he's talking about you were saved by you were you know by grace you are saved through faith all those things he was coming off of saying when you are born again okay that's here we have to start here we have to be born again here we have to that all starts here he didn't just say okay well I'm going to pay for you and then when you get to heaven we'll see you then no it starts here that's why he gave us his gospel that's why I mean that's why he's here in these scriptures I came to save the lost. Like we've said before, he didn't just drop in and just die on Calvary and take back up. He spent three years here ministering as our high priest so that we here would have a greater intercessor. We here would have that compassionate Savior. We here would have the one that would come and rescue us when we're lost. Not willing that any should perish. I think that's such a, that is such a profound comforting statement by God. It's not my will that you should perish. You want to talk about everything that is God's will? This is what's not His will. I have sent my shepherd to save the lost because it is not my will that any of these little ones should perish. Why am I so ferocious about their protection? Why do I say these things are impending for those woes, are impending for those who would offend one of these my little ones? Why would I say that those who scornfully look at my little ones are subject to these penalties by these angels and all these things? Why do I say all this? Because I am protecting what is mine. And I am ferocious about it. That should make us so glad this morning. That should give us such comfort and peace this morning. When you look at John chapter 3, the the verses of Scripture that we all know and love, he he expresses this in John chapter 3. And no man hath ascended up, this is verse 13, no man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This whole idea of the security of the ones that he came for is throughout Scripture. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never abandon you. Those are beautiful testimonies for us. Those those should be immense words of comfort for us. 
you know, that we don't deal with a fickle God. That we don't deal with a God that's one minute for us and the other minute's like, hey, you know what? I'm done with you. It's been a fun run. We had some good times. But in the end, I'm tired of it. I mean, we saw that when we were looking at Moses in Numbers, you know. We're, we're thankful that God is not like Moses, okay? You know, Moses got tired of it. You know what? It's been a good run. I got them all the way from Egypt to Sinai, and here we go taking off, and they start complaining again. I'm done with it. I'm done with the complaints about the food. I'm done with the complaints about the water. I'm done with all the murmuring and the backsliding. I'm done. Kill them all or kill me or do whatever you got to do, but get me out of this situation because I'm done. I am so thankful that's not God with us. Number one, because I could just go ahead and say there probably it all would have been done. It would have been a shorter book. It would have been Genesis 3, the end, okay? Because there's no way God's given us six, seven, eight thousand years worth of history going, you know what, just one more time, just one more time, just one more time. He'd have been like, you know what, I'm tired of y'all. Y'all are a bunch of disobedient, backsliding people. I'm done with you. But thankfully, the God, the Savior that we worship is that good shepherd. The good shepherd that even on our 70th time is still willing to come down, walk out to that mountain and drag us back out of that pit and throw us back in the pen. I think that's such a comfort. That's why we don't ever, we don't ever give up hope on people. Okay? That's why we don't ever write people off. Well, we don't ever go. I mean, there's plenty of times throughout Scripture, okay, Old Testament places, all over where, yes, very true, yea and amen. I mean, I was just reading through as we were going through the book of Daniel. I was reading through the book of Daniel. And I'm not giving any kind of qualifications on Nebuchadnezzar's eternal status, okay? Well, what I do know is that God told Nebuchadnezzar, I raised you up, I gave you all this power, don't get to thinking too highly about yourself. Because when you do, this is what's going to happen. Here's a dream. Let Daniel tell it to you because he's really into dreams, okay? Let him tell you about this dream and tell you what it means. And even Daniel said, look, I'm telling you, God's serious. If you don't want to be this tree that's been chopped down and the dew falling on it and you eating grass and living with animals for however many years that God sees fit to do that, you better not go out there bragging about these things but repent of your sins is basically what he says. The very next chapter, because, you know, God writes in chapters. The very next chapter is when Nebuchadnezzar stands up there and says, look at all of my glory, look at all of my honor, look at all that I have done. And God said, okay, there it is. Here you go. And for a space of time, God left at Nebuchadnezzar right where he was. And then this crazy thing happens, as the Bible records it. His quote-unquote sanity returned to him. You know, I always marvel at that because who's the one that caused his sanity to leave in the first place? So his sanity returned to him, which in my idea is his sanity was restored to him. And in that moment, he looked up and said, you know what? I get the picture. God is the one who rules over the entire earth and all kingdoms are his at his disposal and his kingdom is one that lasts from generation to generation. 
You look at Job, who decided, I mean, you look at Jonah, who decided he wanted to kind of go off on his own. And God said, okay, take off. And he laid in the belly of a whale. And then one day, he too was restored and said, you know what? I think God actually is in control. So yes, there are plenty of times where we as disciples or children of God or whatever it may be, stumble and are offended. We allow ourselves to get offended in the sense that we allow ourselves to stumble and fall off to the side. Okay? That happens. And there's plenty of times that God either graciously immediately picks us back up off the sidelines and says, get on up, let's go. You know, keep going, keep going. I think Paul would be a great example of that. Paul had a thorn in his flesh. No, I'm telling how many times he stumbled and fell with that thorn in the flesh. But God seemed to just keep dragging Paul along, going, keep on coming, man. Keep on coming. And after you seek me three times, I'm going to tell you, you're going to have to just deal with it because this is how it's going to be. But he still was faithful and good and righteous to keep pulling Paul along. And then there's sometimes he says, you know what? You need a vacation. You need an enlightenment vacation. And not in a good way. You need to be let off for a little while so that you can come to your realization of where you actually fit in the cosmic order. And that can be seven days, seven years, 70 years, who knows? Because it's up to God. So it's not that we're pretending that somehow the shepherd instantaneously and always brings the sheep back the next day, okay? Sometimes, and who knows, in this story, you could always elaborate. Who knows how long? He might have sat around and said, you know what? I think I'm going to have one more cup of coffee before I set off to go get him around the mountain. This is the 40th time he has gone this way. And this time he's going to learn that if you walk in this path, you are going to have to suffer for just a little bit so that you understand that that path really isn't the best one for you. So maybe he sits back, props his feet up, drinks one more cup of coffee, and then says, okay, well, I guess I'll go get him again. The point not being... The waywardness, the point not being the inevitability that we're going to probably go astray, the point not being any other things, the point being that Jesus is faithful to get us. He never says, well, I know I've paid for you, I've died for you, but I think I'm done with you. I have no more use for you. You know what, it's, it's an investment that I'm willing to part with. It was a bad investment. You're weighing down my portfolio, and you know what? I think I'm just, I'm, I'm going to let you go. And that should be just the greatest comfort to us. And that picture, I just, over and over and over and over again, I think about that picture of the Good Shepherd, and it just reverberates with my soul. That even when I get myself messed up and broken down in whatever situation it is, that I still have that Savior who will pick me up, throw me over his shoulders, and carry me back. That never leaves me, never abandons me, never forsakes me, even when I am at my stupidest, if that's a good word. He is still faithful and just to take care of me. Because he said, I'm not giving up. I came to save that which was lost. So may God bless us to think on this. And hopefully to take immense comfort from this. So that when we go out there in this week, next week, however many weeks it may be, whatever trials, whatever offenses may come, because we know they're going to come. 
that, yeah, we can kind of rejoice over the fact they're not always going to be around and that they're not always going to come. And one day all this is going to be set right. If you really want to find out when that time is, all you have to do is go back over to the book of Daniel. He tells you exactly how it's going to play out. You know, you got that little horn with all the eyes come up, and then we know it's coming to an end. Because when you see the horn with all the eyes, we know that's the one. And, and so when you figure that out, that then you'll know exactly when it's going to happen, okay? But what... I think draws me more in this is, yes, there are all those offenses that are going to come, and we do take solace in the fact that, yes, one day those offenses are all going to end. You know, praise God for that. But I think more so in that in this scripture, and as we get into the next topic when we're starting to talk about the forgiveness of the brethren, it's going to tie back to this. I have a ferocious commitment, a never-ending love for my little ones, and I will never let them go. No matter how many times they trespass, no matter how many times we have to forgive them. So may God bless us to think on that.